Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get, Get out there and speak the to your farmers today. with your gumboots on. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, welcome to Countrywide. I'm Elsie Adamo. Today, wine grape growers in Australia's largest wine region hold crisis meetings amid historically low prices. We'll head to one of the largest salt mines in the country to hear how the flavour favourite goes from the ground to your plate. And according to the World Vodka Awards, the best botanical vodka is made right here in Australia. The judges in this year's competition highlighted that vodkas for consumers is no longer seen as a colourless, expressionless spirit. They are looking for expressions of taste and texture. We're distilling off a grape-based spirit. That's all coming up on Countrywide. But first today, the Four Corners program on the ABC on Monday night looked at the tactics used by supermarkets to keep prices high and competition out. One startling example was described by former chair of the ACCC, Rod Sims, as misleading advertising. Angus Greek reports. You may not realise it, but Coles is a big player in wine. I've come to the Coles-owned vintage cellars to pick up a bottle of red. There's no shortage of choice, but like many consumers, I go for a mid-price wine at eye level. That one, thanks. So I decided on this one, the Two Churches Preacher Shiraz. I really like the label, but what really got me was the story on the back. It tells a tale of German immigrants coming to South Australia, of two Lutheran priests who fell out and built rival churches at opposite ends of the same village. Online, it's promoted as a tale from the Barossa Valley, where the priests disagreed on almost everything except the quality of grapes grown in the now famous wine region. So I'm here in the Barossa to find out where these grapes are grown. There it is. So this is it, the Light Pass Emmanuel Church, just like on the bottle here. And over there, that's the rival church. It's just such a great story. Is this the home of two churches? I couldn't tell you that from this bottle. Adrian Hoffman is a fifth-generation grape grower from the Barossa and says there's no two churches vineyard around here. I think they're sort of misleading the consumer to a certain degree. It sounds like a Barossa story, but, um, yeah, you can't be guaranteed it's Barossa fruit, unfortunately. So So where is the home of Two Churches Wine? What about the address on the back? What does that tell me? Well, that's that's the first thing I'd sort of go to. You you look at where it's produced, and um, this says it's uh, Hawthorne East in Victoria. suburban Melbourne. Turns out this is the closest there is to a home for the two churches Shiraz. 
Not that it says Coles anywhere on the bottle. Coles says it has around 260 private label wines available through its liquor stores. I mean, the test under law is would a reasonable consumer be misled? Now, if on the label of the bottle you're telling a story that's unrelated to the product, then I think that runs a serious risk of being misleading. Why not put your name on it? Why not say it's Coles Shardy or Supermarket Shiraz? Why are you hiding the fact that you own this brand? So uh, in terms of communicating uh, with customers, uh, there are practices across many retailers and many industries where... Take that point. Shouldn't you say, shouldn't you be honest with the consumer and say, this is a Coles wine? But why do it? We're very comfortable that the branding approach that we have in our liquor brands is one that resonates with customers. After our interview, Coles removed any reference to the Barossa from its online promotion of two churches. Coles CEO Leah Weckert speaking to Four Corners reporter Angus Gregg. But it isn't just wine. One of the areas where major supermarkets are gaining market power is private label spirits like gin and vodka and branding it similar to a boutique label. Kathleen Davis runs an online business that sells and wholesales Australian spirits and she thinks it's a deceptive move. Years ago when when supermarkets would launch a home brand on the shelf, whether it be food or drink, it was very obvious who the home brands were. If you remember back, Black and Gold, um, they would even have their supermarket name on those products. Uh, now they're more or less mimicking small business and, you know, acting like a small handcrafted craft brand. And it's very deceiving to uh, consumers because they're no longer uh, as obvious as what they used to be. But they're not breaking any rules doing this, though, are they? No, they're not. They're not. But if they fail, they don't lose their house. When a small business fails, you know, the people that are investing in the brand to build a truly handcrafted brand could lose their house if their their, their brand fails. Um, you know, small business has so much more to lose than the, you know, supermarket players. They just go out and redesign another product. They've got a whole team behind them. They have all of the insights from sales, from marketing data. They know what uh, shelf position works best for their brands. They know what bottle shape works best based on competitive data that they have. They have so much more of an advantage over a small player in the market. Uh, who is, you know, launching a craft spirit into the Australian marketplace. And you represent a lot of those players. How do they feel about the supermarket presence in in the boutique uh, spirits space? Like a lot of people won't speak up about it because no one wants to hurt their relationships with the national retailers. Um, so to a certain extent, the small players have to just play along with it. I think I know um, friends that work in, um, you know, global companies are are very upset by it because, you know, they're more or less using their data to compete with them as well and take market share from them. But um, at the end of the day, I think it's the smaller businesses that are really suffering from this. Australian Spirits retailer Kathleen Davis. 
The Four Corners reporting caused shock and debate within the sector, with many frustrated with the power the duopoly holds. A survey of nearly 11,000 people by consumer group Choice found many think some Coles and Woolworths specials or promotions are confusing. After being featured in the program on Wednesday, Woolworth CEO Brad Banducci announced he would be stepping down from his position. In a statement to the Australian share market, Woolworth's chair Scott Perkins was full of praise for Banducci's leadership, stating Woolworth's group has been fortunate to have Brad as its leader and he has indeed helped us to be better together. There are currently six inquiries looking into the prices and practices of Australian supermarkets underway. Despite all the debate and attention, there is still cynicism amongst farmers and other suppliers to the major retailers about if any real change is on the way. To South Australia now, where farmers in the country's biggest wine region gathered at a crisis meeting this week to discuss a way forward amid historically low prices for their grapes. Some wineries are offering growers in South Australia's Riverland as little as $120 a tonne for their fruit. That's the same price they were being paid all the way back in the 1970s. After years of financial strain, families are breaking their silence to call for support. Eliza Berlage has this story. It's harvest time in Australia's biggest wine-producing region. The Riverland, with its access to plentiful water from the River Murray, is ready to deliver another bumper crop. But for growers here, a good harvest doesn't always mean a good return. Ray Hardigan has chosen not to harvest this year. The 80-year-old retired soldier from Renmark made the hard decision to spray his vines to prevent them from germinating. The chemicals are retardant and you spray it on at bud burst, which stops the flowers developing into grapes. So what we have here is uh, hectares of grape vines with no grapes. Now I had to make that decision because the winery wouldn't guarantee payment, wouldn't guarantee what they were taking and just all round make things impossible. Often when my grapes are being loaded on the trucks out there, I don't know what price I'm going to get for them. Now what other manufacturer, business person will allow their product to go anywhere without knowing what price they were going to get for it? Is this the first year you've ever not delivered a crop? Um, I only delivered half a crop last year, but it's the first year that I've not delivered a full crop, yes. Nearby at Cobb Dogler, third-generation grape grower Peter Arnold says the 2024 low comes after several historically poor years for grape prices. Yeah, well, we were getting the uh, same prices back in uh, the early 70s as we're getting now, and our costs have gone through the roof. Our power, our diesel, our spray materials. So unless you're getting around about $280 a tonne, and that's for person not employing. If you're employing, you probably need 320 a tonne to uh, survive. And Peter, I understand you've pulled out some of your vines in recent years. Yeah, can you explain what you've done there? Well, if they're not making a profit, pull them out. That's pretty simple. No point in going and using your capital that you've put away to keep something going. And uh, especially now, I'm uh, really pleased that my decision was that way. When China put that 218% tax on, my good old dad said, you've got more than enough, just pull it out. You've got a beautiful place to live. But for the others that are trying to make a living out of it and bring up a family, it's dire for them. The issues confronting the Riverland are not unique. Globally, the wine industry is struggling as drinking habits change. Farmers in Europe are protesting as they face potential financial ruin. Areas that supply so-called bulk wine have been the worst affected. 
In Australia, that's the Riverland, the Riverina and Sunraysia, or Murray-Darling region. Together, these warm inland areas supply nearly 70% of the country's wine grape crush. Until recent years, these regions had been flourishing, but increasing costs and a drastic price drop have hit the industry hard. Chinese tariffs and changing consumer demand have meant there are too many grapes, particularly for red wine. Bridget Nolan runs the American-owned The Wine Group and says while she feels for growers, the global market dictates the price and some may struggle to stay viable. Cost of production is um, sky high at this point in time. Utilities, employment, um, finding suitable applicants. The whole supply chain is under a huge amount of pressure. The ongoing conflict in the Red Sea is making logistics and freight difficult for everyone. So we're feeling it as much as the growers as well. What sort of support could the industry actually use? I think there has to be an inter intervention at a number of levels. Uh, certainly local government, state government and federal need to get involved. Industries' bodies need to come together. It's, um, it's very segmented, it's fractured, and I think that it, it has to be across the whole industry that we come together and work out what exactly it is that we need. But certainly there has to be intervention from those bodies. With 20% of growers considering leaving the industry in the next few years, the local industry is holding a crisis meeting. Among those looking for help are members of the local Punjabi community who have become significant producers. Simi Gill's father moved with his family to the area in 1982. I think this year is like the last year that we can make it through, basically. So... We just need to pay off any like debts, finances or anything like whatever we can get from the winery at the moment. It's difficult, but it outweighs the difficulty of where we are sitting currently. And I think you could ask every farmer, each farmer now in the Riverland is wondering, how do we get out of this mess? So it outweighs the where we are stuck. And I think the bigger picture is what the government doesn't realise I understand that the bigger picture is how do we help farmers come out of this mess and if they can then it will yeah reduce the stress because some of us can't sleep at night to be honest some of us are not sleeping some have probably you know have gone into depression and then we've got a lot of angry people asking what's going on. Mintu Bra joined his niece Simi and her family in the region 15 years ago. He stopped promoting a similar move to his millions of YouTube viewers until the situation stabilises. Lots of Punjabi farmers you can see in the Riverland from last 40 to 50 years. I think nearly 100 to 50 to 200 families are here and uh, they love farming. That's why we was promoting farming, but now I'm telling people, please wait for a couple of years. Charles Matheson is from the region's industry body, Riverland Wine, which found 20% of local grape growers are considering leaving the industry in the next few years. It's not just a local issue either, it's a global issue. And there's no great outlook for red uh, wine grapes for the next foreseeable couple of years. He says substantial mental health issues are emerging. We really need some short-term help though to help pay for things like power bills while people work out what they can do. Hence the meeting is all about working collaboratively across the region to come up with solutions that we can take to all three tiers of government. In a statement, 
Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt said he'd raised the issues faced by the wine industry at a Food and Grocery Code roundtable last week. He said a vine pool scheme would require careful consideration to avoid unintended consequences. The ABC reached out to Accolade Wine for comment, but a response was not received by deadline. Eliza Berlage with that report. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. You're listening to Countrywide. I'm your host today, Elsie Adamo. Staying in South Australia, how much salt have you come into contact with today? There is salt in a lot of our foods and also in agricultural products and even products used to suppress dust on roads. If you have used a salt product today, there is a high chance it has come out of the salt fields on South Australia's York Peninsula. Teetham Salt operates salt fields and refineries throughout Australia, but their largest salt field is located at Price on the York Peninsula, and this salt field supplies a lot of Australia's food industry, both manufacturing and retail. CEO Peter Newton spoke with Kate Higgins about this taken-for-granted commodity. You know, we talk about a day in the life of with salt. So pretty much from when you get up in the morning to when you go to sleep at night, you've come into contact with salt, whether it's the water you drink, the potable water, the, you know, the products that you put on your toast, butter, the actual bread itself, and, uh, and pretty much everything every, during the day, there'll be, there'll be some contact that you would have had with products that are made from salt. And we've got our customers are in all of those segments. We, we often say in the business there's no substitute, and there is no substitute for, um, for salt. We to supply the world's most essential mineral, enhancing life for every person every day. CEO Peter Newton speaking. Site manager David Tornsey explains how the salt fields work. So this is the first start of the, start of the process of the first pumping station. Um, so we pump the seawater in, so it's obviously tidal. Um, so we've um, got these two pumps and we've also got a set of pumps which are out a bit further. So there's like two fields that we have. First pumps pump into, the, into our first pond and that's the, the start of the process of you know working through the growing of the salt. The two pumps here and there are the only first, first mechanical side of it that we use and then everything from there is all um, naturally through gravity with um, wind-up gates and that. So yeah, the, the pumping side of thing from electrical or mechanical is that that's the only process. Um, once these two fields then join together, then we use our final little pump that will pump them into the final crystallisation side of things. So, so again, very natural. So, yes, yeah, so an all-natural um, lay of the land, the way it's been um, built over the years. David Tornsey speaking. The topography and climate at Price ensures there is enough production to keep the adjacent factory operating 24-7. But as with other primary industries, salt has its own growing and harvest season. Peter Newton explains. Topography plays a really big part in the uh, location of a stock of a salt field. So the uh, you know, the types of bases that we've got on our ponds out here, um, obviously you want something that's not that porous. Uh, so um, to make sure that we retain the water, and then um, climate plays a major major role in terms of what we do. So uh, the the fields we've got in the southern part of Australia are, are quite defined in terms of seasons. We've got a defined growing season, which generally happens anywhere from about September through till March, April, and then the, um, the season when we're harvesting, which is normally April, May through till about September. Then we do the whole cycle over and over again. Like other primary industries, salt is dependent on the weather. But unlike other primary industries found throughout the York Peninsula, salt favours drier conditions. David Tornsey again. What we are, we are very reliant on the weather. 
Um, so obviously wind temperature is a key factor for the evaporation process to actually grow the salt. But annually, annually we do a harvest once a year um, at, at this site. And yeah, obviously we bring the seawater in um, and there's certain stages through that process where the environment does its stuff to get to the final product and we have a very um, pure crystal that we grow naturally through our um, fields. Uh, so we generally harvest in the in the winter months because that's where you don't grow salt. So summer periods is where we get good evaporation, um, good crystal growth. With the with the current impacts of the La Nino um, effects over the last three three years, four years, that has certainly impacted our, our growing seasons. However, yeah, we just continually um, are reliant on the weather. So no different to what we are with you know farmers. They're very similar. It's weather weather dependent. In touring the salt fields, the bright pink quality is really striking. But the brightness of the colour is a sign of salt health, says Mr Newton. The pink colour you can see is beta carotene. Uh, so ultimately um, the salt doesn't stay this colour because you can see by the stacks it's white. Uh, so um, this washes out when we harvest, after we harvest and wash the salt. Yeah, really, I mean, it looks great. A, um, a sign of, uh, a characteristic of a, um, a really healthy, well-operating field. CEO Peter Newton. Inside the factory, the salt is refined into different qualities for a range of different products, many of which will end up on the dinner table. David Tornsey explains how some of the manufacturing process works. So the bagging line is uh, part of the manufacturing area, so 25 kg bag. This is our premium salt, Um, so we polyethylene bag, we, we seal it, we fill it, we put a top seal on it, we then process it, obviously check biometal detectors, do all our quality checks on it, uh, and then we palletise out. Uh, once it's palletised, it gets a wrap on it to protect the product, uh, just like the bulk as it then goes into our warehouse ready to send to our customers. Manufacturing at price is going through a period of investment with phased improvements to the plant completed and planned. The aim is to have different drying technologies, better energy efficiency and more flexibility in the plant to enable adapting to different market demands. The facility has been manufacturing salt here since 1917, so over 100 years. The investment in the business is ensuring that we maintain and are here for another 100 years, so that investment into what the stage one is about is that first process. So it is a long process, but it is a key part of the business. It's the the biggest investment the business has put into the site, um, which will set us up for bringing new technologies in and getting us into the future. Cheatham Salt's CEO Peter Newton ending that story from Kate Higgins. Finally today, forget potatoes. A spirit made from surplus Barossa Valley grapes filtered through layers of ancient volcanic rocks has beaten products from more than 20 countries to be judged the world's best botanical vodka at the World Vodka Awards. It was made by Sunshine and Sons in a distillery behind the Big Pineapple on the Sunshine Coast. Jennifer Nichols spoke to the company's very excited co-founder, Matt Hobson. A very early morning phone call from the UK. Didn't mind getting woken up. Our original vodka, judged by an expert panel. The tastings are all blind. We're very, very happy to come out on top and be able to say that for 2024, our Sunshine and Sons original vodka is indeed the world's best. Which is incredible considering you're a pretty new distillery and up against establishments that may have been there for decades. Of course, Australian spirits 
are often perceived as underdogs in international competitions. We don't have the historical leanings, particularly in the vodka category, of course. What goes into your vodka that makes it stand out from the rest? The judges in this year's competition highlighted that vodkas for consumers is no longer seen as a colourless, expressionless spirit. They are looking for expressions of taste and texture. We're distilling off a grape-based spirit, so not grain. That spirit is sourced and produced in the Barossa Valley. So there's a really great sustainability story in our brand that we're able to use a product that would have otherwise gone to landfill or been backfilled into fertiliser, for example, in land care. It's either grapes that are considered inferior for wine production or that are surplus to production, and clearly that's a big avenue currently noting the state of Australian wine. But it's also waste matter from wine crushings, for example, when the grapes are crushed that's left over. Effectively, the organic matter is then consolidated and then the process of fermentation and thereafter distillation occurs. And we are pot distilling. We're not using continuous column stills um, in our local story here on the Sunshine Coast. We are gravity filtering our original vodka through some millennia old volcanic rock collected from all of the headlands, many of the waterfalls and many of the mountain tops on the Sunshine Coast. So we've got some very expressive spirit, not only texturally across your palate, it's very soft, velvety and spongy. The judges describe it as delightful. The minerality through the volcanic uh, rock filtration gives us a, almost a floral pepperiness. We know that delight Australian consumers and we're delighted that the judges were um, clearly impressed. How do you distill it using rocks for filtration? The spirit is removed from the stills um, after distillation. We've got a lovely, clear, um, less flavoursome liquid after distillation. It's still got the fullness and the body and the texture, again, from that delicious, great source of fermentable sugars that we're using. We are using by water, rainwater that's harvested off our roof above our distillery. So I've got a beautiful spirit that's got lots of texture, but the real magic happens afterwards. And we're actually gravity filtering the spirit through several metres of Sunshine Coast volcanic rock. And that very delicate interplay of the spirit interacting with the mineral composition of the rocks imparts that really beautiful, delicious and delightful floral pepperiness that makes our vodka stand out on the shelf and to consumers. Gosh, that's fascinating. Is that a very typical method? Adam Chapman, our head distiller, doing an amazing job. Uh, his wife, Elle, um, a beautiful lady who is from Iceland. Volcanic rock filtering is indeed used wide in Iceland and many of the Scandinavian and Nordic countries. It's not used widely in Australia and to our knowledge, we're the only Australian spirit using that method of post-distillation filtration. But it's certainly a nod to Elle's upbringing and some of the amazing spirits that originate from Iceland. And how long does it take to make vodka? Vodka isn't an aged spirit. So we're distilling this off a base of Australian grape. That grape matter is fermented and thereafter distilled. We're then using that spirit, what we term a neutral spirit, with neutral taste and aroma. Distillation takes approximately 12 hours here in Mumbai. The filtration and what we're adding our Mumbai 
water to bring that spirit down to a bottle strength of 38% ABV. That process takes approximately three to four weeks. So we're doing everything very, very slowly. That really helps us with just how good the vodka is, really allowing the spirit to express itself. That additional time is a key attribute of just how good this vodka is. And how did Sunshine and Sons, which is at the back of the big pineapple complex there, come to be? Well, with um, Michael, my co-founder, Adam, our head distiller, we were passionate about Australian-produced products. Adam was, for 19 years, the head winemaker from inception at Siramay Wines at Redlands. We are good mates. We had a vision of creating a world-renowned brand here on the Sunshine Coast and really pushing the boundaries of just how good Australian spirits could be, both within our Sunshine and Sons Premium Spirits brand and also with our Nil Desperandum Australian Certified Organic Rum brand. And again, this award is a little bit of a proud moment. It's an absolute validation of our ambition to put the Sunshine Coast and Sunshine Coast produced spirits on the world stage. Co-founder of Sunshine and Sons and winner of the world's best vodka, Matt Hobson, speaking with Jennifer Nichols. That is all we have time for for Countrywide this week. You can find more of the program on your favourite podcasting app and you can always head to abc.net.au forward slash rural to catch up on any other news you've missed this week. I'm Elsie Adamo. Bye for now. Listener.